0: I'm Jim Juno, and this is Light Camera Author. Jenny Boyd's Extraordinary Life is the stuff of movies and novels, a story of incredible people and places experienced at the pivotal time in the 20th century. An up-and-coming young model, Jenny found herself at the heart of Carnaby Street in London. Immersed in the fashion and pop culture of the swinging 60s, with boyfriend Mick Fleetwood, sister Patty, George Harrison, and the rest of the Beatles, she lived the London scene— But as a natural flower child, Jenny soon became part of the counterculture in San Francisco during the flower power era. Witnessing the summer of love, she was the inspiration for Donovan's famous song, Jennifer Juniper. After working in the Beatles' shop Apple, she attended Maharishi Mahesh Yogi's ashram in India to study meditation with her sister and the Beatles, where she witnessed their creativity and the genesis of songs that would later appear on the White Album. Jenny also experienced firsthand the turmoil and decadence of the 1970s and 80s. Her two marriages to Mick Fleetwood, founding member of Fleetwood Mac, brought her to the forefront of the world of rock and roll and its fame, money, drugs, and heartache. Struggling in the darkness to find and develop her own voice and identity, Jenny went to college, achieving a master's in counseling psychology and a Ph.D. in humanities. Jenny has spent her life in the company of some of the greatest musical and cultural influencers of the last 50 years, and the journey she takes to finding her own sense of self and creative ability is detailed in her new book, Jennifer Juniper. Hi, welcome to the show. I'm talking with Jennifer Boyd, Jenny Boyd. Welcome to the show, Jenny.
1: Thank you. Nice to be here.
0: Now, your new book is called Jennifer, Juniper, and... For those of you listening who are familiar, there was a famous song by the artist Donovan. And you, if I may say, you were the inspiration for the song, weren't you?
1: I was. I was. And that was, can we believe, over 50 years ago. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was uh, He played it. Uh, i only met him just a few times. And uh, one day he said, I've got a song I, I want to play to you. And so he sat down, sat me down, started playing his guitar, and um, and out came this song, and it was so pretty, and also, I didn't quite know where to look, because I heard the lyrics and saying, he, he obviously had a big crush on me, And um, but it was lovely, and it's still a song that just stays with me today, it's very precious.
0: Now you and he did not have any kind of relationship outside of just friendship, correct?
1: Yeah, we were we were good friends, and um, it was it was definitely platonic, and uh, but there was a real sense of love and friendship, and you know, like loving to hanging out. And I loved listening to play his guitar, and I thought he had a lovely voice. So it was it was really sweet.
0: But it had a bit that had to be surprising to you to hear him to hear him writing a song uh for you.
1: It was it was. I was completely blown away.
0: <laughs> now you you uh of course you were the sister of Patty Boyd who was married to George Harrison. We'll get to that in a, in a few minutes, but you were you were a model back at the height of I guess what you would call the mod era in In London and in england uh, you were you were on the you were you became a model by accident didn't you
1: well I did because I was still going to school and um, my then boyfriend who was in the same band as mick his uh, his band broke up, and so he and Mick were looking for other jobs and they were um, sort of often they would just go and paint people 's studios for them or you know, I think painting job was the thing that they felt they could do while waiting to join another band. And he happened to come across these two um, fashion designers, very, very cool fashion designers, a bit sort of like Mary Quant, you know, that same era. And, um, And they said they were looking for a house model, someone to show their clothes off to the editors of all the glossy magazines. And so he mentioned me. So I left school, didn't talk to my mother about it, and just um, started work the following Monday in Carnaby Street, and it was it was very fun. It was very um. T- it was not how it is now because there were just uh, for the first time lots of men's boutiques and uh, what was happening, which you never had before, is the people there was. Um, there were young people working there and they were playing great music that would come out into the street and, uh, and we all would sort of hang out together. So it was, um, it was really a very exciting time. And I think it's also very exciting being 16, 17. You know, life is opening up for you.
0: That's right. And the Mick you, you're talking about is Mick Fleetwood, uh, Fleetwood Mac. And he was your boyfriend at the time, correct? You eventually, later on, you got married I want to make sure I'm. Yeah, he,
1: he was—he was my boyfriend. He'd seen—he'd seen me before I even knew of him. He'd see me at, um, on my way to school or coming back in the coffee shop, and told himself that's the girl I'm going to marry one day. And uh, the fact is, I went out with his friend first because my friend had a big crush on Mick, so I didn't want to upset her. So. Um, the the singer of the band asked me out (laughs) and uh, so and I didn't actually get together with our relationship until for about quite a few months afterwards and yeah we were we were um we were very young we were sort of 16 17 when we first started going out and uh we'd go to clubs with um patty and george and the rest of the beatles and you know it was just so much fun and um we we would sort of be together, and then I broke it up because I thought, well, you know, there's more to life, and I need to find out about life and look around. Anyway, but we did end up marrying. It's like we'd always been in each other's lives, even when we weren't dating. We were always in connection with each other.
0: I remember you, in your book you talked about him leaving on trips, and you really you were you were really torn, weren't you? It was like you, you want him to stay, but you don't want to stand in the way of him. Of him being a success.
1: That's right. That's right. It's a really tough call because you're happy for them because you love them and you want them and you know that this is what they really want. But it would be very um, lonely because, when, especially when we all lived together with Fleetwood Mac before we all went to America, and um, you know, either the house would be filled with uh road crew or you know all the band and uh rehearsing and you know big everything was going on all the time and then they'd be off on a three-month tour and there'd be nothing There was no one i'd be in this creaky old house and uh you know just had a baby or then two babies and so it was um it was a really hard call
0: let me ask you um now you uh You mentioned that you 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 went to clubs with with Patty, your sister, and George Harrison and the rest of the Beatles. You just mentioned that so nonchalantly that it was (laughs) that's that's a unique perspective, isn't it? Somebody from the from you got to see Beatlemania from the inside.
1: That's right. And it wasn't because I'm often I'm asked, well, what did it feel like? You know, were you aware of, you know, just enormity of what was going on? And it wasn't like that. It was, I think, because when you're so young, you just accept life, whatever life is offering to you. And it just so happened it was all these guys, and um, that was life. It wasn't. It didn't. Um, it didn't register in a huge way. It was just what was happening.
0: And you, got, but you got to travel with them. Um, I'm, now, you went to India with them. But we'll get to that in a moment and talk about the Maharishi and all that great stuff. But you also, let me tell, tell me about your first trip to Los Angeles.
1: Yes, Los Angeles. Okay. Uh, That was when Mick was playing with Peter Green was in the band and Jeremy Spencer. And, uh, and I'd be on the road with them. Um, And when we got to L.A., oh, no, 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 that's before that. You're right. I don't even know my own book. Um, In San Francisco. When I went to San Francisco and it was 1967 and I arrived in San Francisco March 1967, had no idea that what was going on was actually going on. Not a clue because we didn't know in those days. And when I got to L.A., uh, I went to Monterey Pop Festival with my friend we drove up from san francisco and um saw the pop festival which was incredible and it was the first of its kind and i was friendly with um one of the members of jefferson airplane uh, paul kantner and he'd said to us oh come come to la and come and uh, come to the studio because we're recording and it would be lovely to see you kind of thing and uh, and so my friend and i went to la so that was the first time i'd been there and um I just thought it was such a sprawl I mean, we didn't go to the coast or um, didn't see all the bits of of LA, but uh, that was my first, first visit.
0: Was it a bit of a culture shock? Um,
1: No, because I'd already been in San Francisco. I mean, San Francisco was because it was a different culture, but what was confusing for me when I went to San Francisco, even though I'd been to New York modeling, um, like two years before was that was a culture shock because there was this counterculture that I suddenly I was where I was living I was right in the center of it and so it was just right there and it was everything that I had been feeling and thinking myself you know the whole kind of search for um, I don't know sort of search for enlightenment or you know on that uh, spiritual journey and there everybody was doing the same thing in their different ways. So um, the bit that confused me was because everybody spoke, I say it was an English accent. What I mean is it wasn't like it was a foreign accent. So I could understand what people were saying, but there were definitely words that had different meanings and different nuances because it was a different culture, but it was confusing because it was sort of a similar language.
0: Now, you you mentioned New York and I remember in your book, you talked about going to the Algonquin Hotel and mm-hmm. they wouldn't let you in because you were wearing gasp trousers. <laughs> <laughs>
1: really? And it was a really smart trousers. Very smart. <laughs> and um, and they wouldn't let me in for breakfast. No, I had to go and wear a dress. And I was just so embarrassed because what was I then? 17, and you know, I was with these with my sister who was there, uh, you know, sort of pretty, she'd been modeling for quite a while and and these other Mary Quant models. And I felt so embarrassed and I was singled out and I had to go and wear a dress instead for breakfast. <laughs> oh,
0: man. Well, I'm glad things have changed since, yeah. since then. At least we've made some progress. Um, <laughs> now, you went to India with the Beatles. And mm-hmm. how was that experience? That, you, that introdu- did that introduce you to Transcendental Meditation?
1: Um, we'd, we'd uh, learnt um, we done all done transcendental we'd all actually had our mantra given to us at the same time because Maharishi came to London uh, and uh, we knew he was coming and uh, he was giving a talk at the Hilton Hotel in London so we all went to that and um, he asked us if we'd like to go to Bangor in Wales and um, have uh, more in-depth information about meditation and- could get our mantra too while we were there and so we had our mantra and i had been meditating for about three months three four months before we went to india oh, you um,
0: cut out you cut out on me at the end there what was
1: that already my spiritual test oh. to india something that i i mean I'd always wanted to go to india because that was part of this whole you know, Eastern religion, philosophy, um, and we'd be meditating. So being in India with, with everybody was just a dream come true. And a lot of it was because it meant I wasn't smoking pot anymore. I wasn't taking acid. I wasn't trying to find out what, who we were and all this kind of thing that way, that meditation was the way that really suited me. And the fact that we were sort of the foothills of the Himalayas and it was just so beautiful and just the Ganges right there. It was an incredible experience and something that obviously one just never will forget.
0: But it ended quite suddenly, didn't it? I mean, George and Patty, I believe, came into your room where you were staying and said, Yeah, Pack, we're leaving.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I had no idea all this was going on because Alex, that they call Magic Alex, had come to India. And I knew Alex because I was renting a room in in his house in London. And uh, he, I just felt he was very possessive of John because John and Cynthia came to our house the night before we left for India, and he was still then asking him why why asking John why why are you going to Maharit Maharishi? Why didn't you come to my guru? You know that sort of thing. And, um, and so when he arrived at the ashram, I had a feeling he was there to make trouble. And sure enough, he started befriending a woman who already was making claims against Maharishi. And so uh, he kind of blew all that up. And maybe it was true. We don't know. But, um, but then when we left, it was, it was so shocking because I was just so happy, I, you know, in this sort of like two and a half months of this amazing way of living but what was so lovely is that we went Patty George and I went to South India where we hooked up with Ravi Shankar and his troupe and toured with them and that was unbelievably um you know such a privilege
0: Well let me ask you this now you are uh, now your book to me it looked like it was separated into two I'm sorry three uh sections one was you know you're growing up in in the in the mod 60s and you're you know basically at the party time you're young you know you're going to parties rather and then the second part of it is where you are maturing and then the last part of it you're clean you're not you're not doing drugs you're not doing acid but you're founding you're founding almost like a 12 step program for to help those I mean you've got your you got your masters from UCLA um uh, No it wasn't
1: UCLA I know that was written I saw that written when my last book, It's Not Only Rock and Roll, oh. uh, came out. Someone had put, or when it was Musicians in Tune, someone had put UCLA. No, it was called Rio Khan, Ryokan, R Y O K A N, College. Oh. And that, right, that's where I studied for four and a half years.
0: So, um, but, you know, is that, would that be a fair assessment of your book, what I just said, except for the, yes. except for mistaking? Absolutely.
1: Okay. It's a journey, yeah.
0: It's a. It's almost like a learn. Yeah, you know, like you said, a learning process of going from a young girl to your to your, let's say, mature age now. You know, and um. What part of a part? What part of the book to you was is most important to you?
1: Ooh, that's so difficult to say because. Actually, you know, having written that many years writing this book, which I didn't realize that would become a book one day, and obviously hoped it would, but there's so much stuff, and if I hadn't cut out as much as I cut out, the thing would be, you know, really thick. But you have to cut out a lot because you've got to keep the thing moving. Um, so bits of that that are in there are, to me, the cream. You know, that's what that's what. My, I'm trying to make it like a journey, and it's a journey, as you say, from the innocence of the 60s, you know, through the decadence of the 70s, and then finding your own voice. So it, it has an, an arc, and it has it's part of a journey. So it's very hard to pick out one particular piece that then feels like the favorite. I mean, there were some bits that were really tough to write, and the more I rewrote them, the sort of less painful it became. And, uh, you know, so in a way it's been therapeutic for me writing it.
0: I was going to say, it, it, sound, it sounded like it was almost a catharsis uh, for you.
1: Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah.
0: Now, now, why did you decide to write this book now in your life?
1: Um... The fact is, because I started it years ago, the first reason that, because I love to write anyway, but the reason why I started it was to make sense of my life. I'd moved back to England. I'd been in LA for fifteen years, and uh, you know there'd been that crazy stuff, and then my second marriage with Ian, with who uh, was Ian Wallace and going to college and all that stuff. And then I arrived in England, and I was now, you know, working for the treatment centers in in Arizona. And I was just, it was like a sort of time of reflection. And I just started writing down things that I remembered, things from when we lived in Africa, you know, things about the 60s, all the things I remembered. And, And so the fact is, in my life, but the but the story kind of morphed into different things as different things would happen over the last few years. But as it is now, I suppose it feels like um I feel like I'm in a really good place and I can definitely feel reflective about this. And um yeah, I think if that if that answered your question. <laughs>
0: that's that's great. <clears throat> Let me ask you I, I gotta I'm sorry, I gotta ask another Beatles question here. Um what was your what was the the best or biggest memory that you would take with you from that time
1: um ooh, i would say oh it's tough um i would say a memory that i have in fact i mentioned it in that um, my book about creativity and musicians is when we were sitting on the roof of our of the bungalow that we all had, because you know, the other people in the ashram had different bungalows all the way down the track. And when we were sitting on the on the roof of our bungalow, and George would have his guitar, and Paul his, and um, and John his, and just we'd just be sitting in the sun, a lovely morning sun, not too hot, and uh, having our hands hennaed or whatever. The, the girls, and listening to the songs that just came out of nowhere, whether it was John saying, I couldn't sleep last night, or whether it was Bungalow Bill, or Dear Prudence, you know, just being a witness to all those songs as they were emerging. And it was all to do with what was going on in the ashram. It was very much present stuff that I was aware of and knew of. And them turning things like that into these amazing songs. That's that's a very vivid memory.
0: Didn't you call George and you'd heard a saying called within you, without you.
1: Yes.
0: And you called that George. That was
1: um before I went to San Francisco. Yeah, that was before I went to San Francisco and I'd had this sort of aha sort of spiritual awakening feeling. And um and I was searching, searching for meaning, searching for answers. And I remember we were sitting around the table, cross-legged at a friend's house, listening to music, because that's what we did, was just listen, loving music. Um, And I picked up a book on his table, and it just uh, opened up. It was called uh, The Karma and Rebirth by Christmas Humphreys. And I opened it up, and it said, life goes on within you and without you. And I was so blown away by that little phrase. That I called Patti and George, and George answered the phone, and I said, "Listen to this. Life goes on within you and without you," and he got it immediately. And then, then you know, he wrote that song.
0: Amazing. Now, you're also almost just as amazing. Um, late, in, late in your book, you mentioned that the twelve step programs in the UK, when at the time that you were that you were developing, I guess your own. They were light years behind what they are in the States.
1: Well, um, definitely the treatment centers. The treatment centers were, um, they had moved on at all, and it was all very strict, and, um, and of course, nothing to do with, there was no medication. Um, they felt that was, you know, using, and so... I what I tried to do and what I did was bring the psychiatrists and family therapists and all these people I'd bring them to England and ask the um, CEOs and psychiatrists from a lot of the well-known treatment centers so everybody could get together and so the psychiatrist that, um, that I worked with at the treatment center I was working in, in in Tucson would give a talk and so it was that thing I just wanted people to sort of share information and knowledge because it seemed really important to me and it seemed to me that they were light years ahead in the states there was much more respect probably for the um for the addicts the the people that were actually in treatment it wasn't like a fierce boarding school
0: what made you decide to to do that to start your to own
1: go- no, the Spring Workshops. You mean the Spring Workshops?
0: Yes, uh-huh.
1: Yeah, that was um, because I'd been to one of the treatment centers uh, because I was working for them um, in Arizona, and they had this five-day program, and... Um, I I wanted to go through that just for something that was going on for me personally but they really wanted people that were working for them to go through the treatment center so you can really talk about it uh, through through their five-day program and I was so inspired by it that I asked the guy that was taking it, that was facilitating it, would he consider coming to England and doing the same for us over there? So it was as if I'd picked up all this stuff and felt inspired by it. So I wanted to create it in England so they could have a chance to do it. And, you know, some people, they couldn't afford to go to treatment. And maybe they didn't really need to. But to have a sort of three-day workshop, say, um, by somebody that I would bring over was something I felt I was able to give them because because it inspired me. And that's where it began. And it went on for about 20 years.
0: I know. It, 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 sorry, I,
1: but- Mm-hmm. But they were always therapists from the States. That was my thing because I just knew, having lived in the States for so long, there was just much a different kind of energy. It was much more um, charismatic and something. And, and people loved these workshops.
0: Fantastic. Well, Jenny, I appreciate you taking time today. The book is Jennifer Juniper, Jennifer Boyd. Jenny Boyd, Jenny Boyd, Boyd, as author, it's been it's been fantastic talking to you. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much, and really good to talk to you too.
0: You can find more information about the book Jennifer Juniper at urbanepublications.com. For Light's Camera author, I'm Jim Juno.